It's so good to be with you tonight on another upcoming snowy evening. In my driveway, I have this mountain of snow because I shovel, and I don't think it can take one more snowfall. So we'll see what happens tomorrow if the whole thing just comes tumbling on me as I try to shovel. But it has been a fun winter, hasn't it? Every Tuesday, it snowed. Every Tuesday, and in the fall, the first eight weeks, like six out of the first eight weeks, it downpoured. I don't know if you remember that, but we've had great weather on Tuesday nights. So thank you, Jesus. We love you, and we praise you in the storm if you've heard Casting Crowns, right? Okay, anyways. All right, so it's good to see you guys. If you're new tonight, I just want to say welcome. We're glad you're here. Uh, you came on a fun night. We are starting our dating and relationship series. So it's bound to get awkward at times as I try to talk about sex and... I'm just kidding. Marriage. I was just going to have that long pause there. And love and romance. All right. So I just want to say on the front end, too, um, a lot of the stuff I teach will come from this book. You see this book? It's called Loveology by John Mark Comer. If you want to learn more about some of this stuff, I encourage you to buy this book. It's like $13 on Amazon. It's, it's totally worth uh, the price of the book. So I encourage you uh, with that. So when I was in second grade, I got myself into a bind. There was these two nice girls that I liked, and they were best friends. I liked both of them. No, like, like, not just like, but I like, like, both of them. And I wanted to call both of them my girlfriend. I simply could not choose between the two of them, so I devised a way to not have to choose. I feel like men have been doing this all throughout history, you know? Like, I'm not going to go there. I shouldn't go there. I'm just saying, like, polygamy and stuff, like, it seems like it's made up, right? A guy wants to be able to marry multiple women. If anyone's saying that, then he might have some interests in mind that aren't God. But anyways, besides the point, I wanted some second grade polygamy to happen in my life. And, and surprisingly, they both agreed to this. I talked to both of them, sat them down, said, hey, I like both of you. Would you want to both be my girlfriend? And they both said yes. And uh, I can remember literally sitting on the wooden playground with my arm around both of them. I'm like, so I seriously can, can totally remember that clear as day. But here's the thing. It only lasted about an hour. <laughs> they, they started to get jealous of each other, and they realized, even as second graders, that when you try to do relationships that aren't according to God's design, that they are kind of sticky, they're difficult. Uh, and for them, they just did not buy into polygamy as second graders. So here's the reality. All of us come in here tonight with different backgrounds when it comes to to relationships and sexuality. God delivered me from polygamy, okay? I'm playing. It was, a one, it was just a one-time thing. But some of us, so all of us come here from different backgrounds. Some of you are still waiting for your first kiss. Others of you have had many sexual partners. Uh, some of us have been in committed long-term relationships. And others have been in you know, maybe one or two relationships, but they only lasted a month or two. And, it, and there wasn't a whole lot of commitment there. Uh, some of you have a line of people who want to date you, like people are, are adding you on Facebook saying, what's up, boy, or what's up, girl, and others of you can't seem to find anyone who wants to date you, and there's nothing wrong with that, okay? Some of us have followed God's intent for relationships pretty well, and because of that, we haven't experienced a whole lot of heartache, but then others of us have not followed God's design for relationships, and because of that, we've experienced some heartache. So my hope and prayer for this series is, well, it's a few things. One, I hope that God will give us a biblical understanding of his design for relationships because there's a lot of different 
uh, designs out there. There's a lot of different ideas, but the scriptures give us a really beautiful one. So I hope that God will make that clear to us. Two, I pray that if you came in here tonight, and maybe some people are totally avoiding tonight because of the topic. Maybe you're listening at home uh, on Wednesday morning. You're listening right now, and you didn't come because, because you're feeling shame and guilt because of the way that you've done relationships. Or maybe you're here tonight, and you came despite the fact that you feel shame, you feel guilt, you feel like you've screwed it up. So my prayer is that for those of you who are coming in here with that perspective, I pray that God would release you from that, that he would give you a fresh start, that he would tell you that you're forgiven and that you would be able to follow his path going forward. And finally, my prayer is that he would prepare each of us for, for some of us for marriage and others of us for singleness. You know, we see in the scriptures, and I'll look at that later, but really there's two different pathways we can choose when it comes to relationships, either marriage or singleness. That's really all we get when it comes to romantic relationships. So I pray that... Uh, that uh, no matter what you're called to, that God would prepare you for that through this series. Okay, so with that said, we're starting a new series, XOXA. Come on, that's a pretty cool name. I did not come up with it. I stole it from a different Chi Alpha, so I'm just going to have the disclaimer. And we're going to spend the next three weeks talking about marriage and dating and relationships and a little bit about sex. And next week, my friend Austin Weaver from Urbandale, he's a, a young adults pastor uh, down there. He's coming up here to talk about sex, okay, because I didn't want to talk about it. Uh, so he's going to talk about sexual purity and specifically pornography. So come for that if you're excited about talking about pornography on a Tuesday night. It's going to be a good one. But seriously, we should all show up because when guest speakers come, we should you know, show them honor and love and respect. So please come next week if you can. And then the last week, we're going to talk about uh, just straight up talk about dating. Okay? So I'm going to give you three big, uh, three big tips on dating. Okay? It's going to be more topical sermon, not as much uh, grounded in the text because you know, the Bible doesn't even talk about dating. So I'm going to give you some broad ideas of how you can date well, okay? So get excited for that. And then this Friday as well, we're going to have a dating panel at Grace Community uh, for Brotherhood, Sisterhood. We're going to have, a, or Jacob talked about it on the video, but we're going to have a dating panel where you can ask questions about anything, okay? Singleness, dating, engagement, marriage, whatever. You can ask questions. All right, so that's kind of our plan for the next month. Uh, but tonight, we're going to start out with the first love story, okay? The very first love story in the history of the world, and that's the title of the message, The First Love Story. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. So it's only like a few pages into the scripture. So if you're not very acquainted with the scriptures, this is an easy passage uh, to turn to. It's the very first book. It's chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 15. And as I said, Genesis is the very first book in the Bible. And in the first two chapters, the author Moses tells us about the creation of the world. In Genesis 1, he gives us a big picture view of creation. Okay, he tells us how God created the heavens and the earth. He created the light and the darkness, the land and the sea, the vegetation and the fruit, the sun and the moon, uh, the sea creatures and the birds, the livestock and the creeping things. And then finally, he created man and woman. And God tells the man and the woman that they are created in his very image. And he commands them to be fruitful and multiply. So the very first command in the Bible is to have sex. Okay, I'm just saying so maybe God likes sex. I think sex is a good thing. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. Uh, but that's Genesis chapter 1, okay? But tonight we're going to look at Genesis chapter 2, which is an, a different creation story. It's, it's the same story, but it's telling it from a different perspective. So the first one is a big picture view of creation, but then Genesis 2 kind of gets down and zooms into the creation story and shows more specifically how God created man and woman. And in this chapter, we'll see the very first wedding ceremony ever, okay? And it's beautiful. And it it's kind of a paradigm. Okay, so there's the, the wedding ceremony, but then God 
uh, sets this marriage up as a paradigm for the rest of us to follow. Okay, so Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 through 25, this is uh, ground zero for theology on marriage. And I think it's a great way to start the series because I think everything else about this topic flows out of this chapter. Okay, let's read it. It says, the Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of or but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day, or for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And what and, and whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heaven and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. I just picture like uh, Shakespeare, Romeo, and Juliet like, him sitting down looking up at the window where the girl's at, just saying, this is bone of my bones, the flesh of my flesh. That's what I picture when I read this. Okay. And she shall be called, or be called woman because she was taken out of man. And therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Okay, so this line here is important in verse 24. It's an interpolation, I think that's how you say it, in the original language, which simply means it's a... There's a remark that's injected into a story uh, to make a greater point. So verses 15 through 23 are telling a story, and then in verse 24, it's like God's voice jumps in, okay? He's telling a story, and then all of a sudden, God interjects, and he says, hey, listen up. Pay attention. This marriage is a paradigm for all marriages everywhere, because think about it. Adam did not have parents, okay? So when he's saying uh, that the man should leave his father and his mother, that doesn't just apply to Adam. He didn't even have parents, okay? This applies to everybody. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And think about it, too. Eve did not have any other options, okay? So this is just, this is not about just, like, their story. It's all of our story, okay? All right, and then verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Sorry, I'm just trying to make you guys uncomfortable. Okay, main idea tonight is this. Marriage is a beautiful gift from God that is worth pursuing. And marriage is a beautiful gift from God that's worth pursuing. Everything we know about, about love and marriage started with these two naked humans in a garden. Everything started with that first love song that Adam sang. Everything started with that. Two humans came together in full love and devotion to each other, and out of their love came the whole world. And tonight we stand in Lang Auditorium as their sons and daughters. Our story can be traced back to their love story. And God's, or God's dream for us is that our love stories would look a little bit like this original love story. And that we would become one flesh and give ourselves fully to one other person for life. So for you guys, that God could bring you a beautiful woman who makes your heart leap out of your chest and who you can call bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And a woman who can leave your father and your mother and lay down your life for. That's God's dream for men and for women, that God could bring you a guy who's going to love you 
and cherish you, who's going to lay down his life for you and be fully invested in, in your relationship. And for all of us, that in our marriages, we could pursue Jesus together. However, we know that, that this is not the way it always works, right? Because we don't live in the garden anymore. Instead of being, or being naked and free and unashamed, we hide behind our clothes and we mask our guilt and shame. And the sad reality is 50% of our, of our marriages end in divorce. 50%. Okay, flip a coin and, and call it in the air, and that's your chances of your marriage making it. 50%. Something went wrong. Okay, one-third of babies or kids go to bed without a dad. There's something wrong. We don't live in the garden anymore. So tonight what I'm praying would happen is that each of us, in our own hearts, could get back to the garden. We could come back to this first love story to get a fresh but ancient understanding of what God's best is for marriage and for sexuality. So tonight I want to ask the question, what is God's dream for marriage? And what is God's dream for sexuality and relationships? And I truly believe if we follow God's dream that we're going to realize all that God has for us in this area. All right, so I want to make three points to get there, so maybe that surprises you. Kind of crazy. Three points, okay? It's going to come right from the text. Okay, verse 15 through 17. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay, so the first thing I want you to get tonight is we can trust that God's dream for marriage is good. God's dream for marriage is good. And I forgot to pray. I typically do that after the, or after the main idea. So I'm going to pray really quick. Okay, so Jesus, thank you for your love and your grace. God, I pray tonight that you would speak to each of us as we dive into these three points. And God, I pray that you would just truly illuminate the scriptures to our heart. And God, I pray that you would, in a sense, call us back to this first love story. All right, God, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, first point, we can trust that God's marriage, or that God's dream for marriage is good, okay? So we see in Genesis 2 that God created marriage. It was his idea. God came up with it. God created marriage. It's not a product of culture or just human society. God came up with marriage. He created it. And that's why every people on planet Earth get married. Like every culture, there's marriage. It's because it started at the very beginning, and because God created it, he knows how it's supposed to function and how it's supposed to work. The first love story between Adam and Eve seemed pretty incredible, right? Like Adam's singing, and you know when you go to a wedding and the reception's happening and all of a sudden the groom comes out and sits at a piano or grabs his guitar, it's usually really bad, let's be honest. But hey, he really loves her, right? That's what happened. Adam was singing a song at that first wedding ceremony. However, for this story to stay good beyond the wedding, God knew that they needed to stay inside certain parameters. And the parameter, there's only one, okay? And that was to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Only a chapter later, okay, one chapter later, it's actually a few verses, Satan tries to get Adam and Eve to question God's heart for them and his loving parameters. So Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 7, you can turn right there, it's, it's the very next verse. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So the serpent, Satan, he said to the woman, or said to the woman, or did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? 
And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, and neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, he says, you will not surely die, for God knows that, that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evils. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be or to be uh, desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Okay, so God gave them a boundary. And then Satan lies to them and tells them that the boundary is not a good thing. And then they cross the boundary, and they sin, and then what happens? Shame, guilt, death comes. Does that sound familiar? It sounds like my life, right? Satan's like, do it, Daniel, do it. And I'm like, I don't know. God said not to, but it sounds like fun. I do it, and then boom, he hits me with shame. Comes right from Satan, right? And he traps us. He tells us that God does not have our best in mind, and then he fills us with shame when we don't obey God. As we talked about two weeks ago, if you were here, Satan's primary form of attack is to lie to us. He says, did God actually say satan wanted them to question god's design for their lives satan knew that if they went against god's parameters that sin and death would come into the world and the greatest tragedy ever of all of human history adam and eve listened to satan's lies satan wants you to believe that god does not have your best in mind sin is ultimately not trusting that god has your best interest in mind and satan loves to exploit that and one of the primary ways, if we're honest, one of the primary ways that he attacks, specifically in our culture and in all cultures, is with marriage and with sexuality. He says, did God actually say that you shouldn't sleep with your boyfriend before marriage? Did God actually say that you shouldn't look at pornography? He asks these questions because he knows that if we don't believe that God's design for our life is good and we go against it, it's going to wreak destruction and havoc into our lives. So let us establish this. Satan wants to destroy you, okay? He doesn't like you. He wants to kill you, and he's going to lie to you. Jesus, though, wants to save you, and he has a reason for his parameters, okay? So John 10.10 says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but Jesus came. Jesus came that you may have life and have it abundantly. Come on, somebody. If that doesn't get you excited tonight, I don't know what's going to get you excited. Jesus came to give us life. He didn't or did not come to steal your fun, right? He knows how to have the best fun, and the best sex in the world is inside marriage, and he knows that, all right? The best way to do romance is inside of marriage. Jesus knows that, okay? So Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 24 says this, and the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. God wants what's best for us. He wants us to have incredible romantic relationships, well, shit, hopefully, and sex. And he says that the best place for sex and romance to happen is inside of marriage. And study after study after study shows that people with the best sex lives are those who commit to one person of the opposite sex inside of marriage and who have had few or no partners before marriage. And people with uh, the lowest uh, level of sexual satisfaction are people who are more promiscuous and single. Our study after study shows that. God knows that romance and sex inside a marriage opens you up to trust 
and vulnerability and beauty, and it's so and it solidifies your relationship with your spouse. However, sex and romance outside of that commitment, outside of a lifelong commitment of marriage, makes it harder to trust another person because it's all the pleasure of sex minus the commitment of marriage. And you are constantly trying to perform to keep the other person. In marriage, let's just be honest. If I suck at sex, Emily can't leave me, which she's not supposed to, right? Okay? But if you're just hooking up, hey, Hey, she wasn't very good in the bedroom. That's the reality. So I'm just saying, sex inside a marriage is secure. It's bound by this legal commitment, not only a commitment of love, but a legal commitment that says we're in this for life, or at least that's the way it's supposed to be, right? So tonight, we need to establish that God's heart and design for relationships and sex is better than anything our culture or the world can offer. He created marriage. He knows how it's supposed to work. He also created you, and he knows how you're supposed to work. He knows how you're supposed to work. He knows all your thoughts. He knows all your concerns, all your fears. He knows what's going to send you down a spiraling hill, and he knows what's going to lift you up. He knows what's going to bring you joy. God knows us. He knows marriage. He knows how it's supposed to work, and he's after our joy, okay? So if this is the God we serve, we can trust him, okay? In Psalm 1611, it says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. Mm. Mm, come on. In God's presence, there's fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I want to be at his right hand, baby. Come on. I don't want to take what the world has to offer me because it's only led me down to despair and destruction. But God's presence and God's ways lead me to joy and to life. He wants you to be joyful. God does not want to steal your fun. He wants you to be joyful. Come on, somebody. Let's go. And that's not even like the big point tonight. I got some more coming. All right, so uh, verses 18 through 20. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I'm going to make him a helper fit for him. And now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field. Okay, point is he names all the creatures. And then, or but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Okay, so second thing tonight is this. We are designed for loving relationship. Okay, it's in your very nature to love somebody. These verses completely deconstruct the idea that all we need is God. All I need is God. I'm not really spiritual. When I'm dating Jesus, all I need is Jesus. All I need is God. No, Adam did not have sin or death separating him from God, and he still needed a helper. He still needed a friend. God told Adam, it's not good for you to be alone. I'm not all you need. You need a friend. You need a helper. God brought him all these different animals, and none of them were fit for helpers. And this word for helper and the Hebrew is Ezer, and it's not a personal citizen. Okay, it sounds like, okay, this sounds like patriarchy, right? Adam needs a helper. What's that look like, a secretary or something? No, in the Hebrew, helper refers to a partner. It's an equal partner. It's not just a personal assistant. It's this idea of, well, actually, in the Psalms, it says, the Lord is my Ezer. The Lord is my helper. Okay, so God is referred to as a helper. Okay, so it's this idea of someone who comes alongside you. It's this idea of two equal people doing life together. So when God made Eve, he wasn't just making Adam a personal assistant, but instead he was making him an equal to do life with. So we're going to dive more into the specifics of the marriage relationship in a second, but for now, I want to establish that God made us to love. God made us to love inside of community. It's in our nature. It's in our nature because we were made in God's image, and God is three persons, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And 1 John tells us that God is love. So for all of eternity, the Trinity has been mutually loving 
and serving and laying down their lives for one another. And since we're made in God's image, we are called to be like that, to have someone to love, to have loving community. We're called to find other people who we can love and do life with, okay? But to really understand what I mean by love, I have to establish what is love, okay? Is there a song? Like, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. All right, so love is a juncture word in our language, okay? We say, I love Chi Alpha, and I love McDonald's. I love Mountain Dew, which I think that's like, if you say you like Mountain Dew these days, you're like looked down upon, okay? So I drink Coke now because I don't want to be looked down upon. But anyways, and then we say, I love you and I. And then we say, I love Jesus. So what does love actually mean? Are all these things the same kind of love? Well, before I define love, let me establish what love is not, okay? Two things that love is not that culture tells us it is. First thing is love is not tolerance. And tolerance, in its pure sense, is a good thing, okay? I'm not talking down about tolerance. It's good to not judge. It's good to respect other people, to treat everyone with dignity. However, we need to make sure that we don't make the mistake of placing tolerance as a synonym for love, because it's not. Because tolerance at its core is passive, right? You don't really do anything. You just say, okay, you do you. I'm going to do me. Let's not really talk or anything. I'm just going to let you do your thing. I'm going to do my thing. It's passive. But love is active. Like love is actually laying down your life for someone, okay? It's this active, it's a verb. You heard John Mayer, love is a verb. I don't know if that's too old of a song, but love is a verb, all right? You do something. You don't just sit there and let it happen to you, all right? So that's the first thing, the first thing that love is not. The second thing is love is not just emotional passion, okay? So a lot of times we say, okay, I love this. And the reason we're saying we love that, like, hey, I love hiking, is because hiking gives us excitement. It makes us happy. Or we say, I love this restaurant, or I love this person. And it's, it's typically sourced in this idea that, uh, that when you're around that certain person or when you're at that restaurant, you're super happy. Okay, so Raising Cane's is opening up here soon. I love Raising Cane's. If you're not going, you better go on that first day. I love Raising Cane's. And please don't go in there with these high expectations. Like John Griffin, I talked it up to him. He went in there. He hates it now. So don't go in with high expectations. But I think Raising Cane's is great, okay? I love Raising Cane's. But the thing is, love is not just the feeling I get at Raising Cane's. Again, in this sense, love is passive. It's something that happens to you, you or, or something that happens to you. So you think about this. You say, I fell in love. Like Olivia fell in love with Zach Lindorf. okay? He's a stud muffin. He's not here tonight, so I can say that, okay? But like, we don't fall into love, okay? That's just like happiness happens to us. It's passive. No, love is active. Like love is saying, I'm going to commit to someone. I'm going to lay down my life for someone. So love is, in a sense, emotion and passion, but it's not just that, okay? Okay, so we've established what love is not, so the question is, what is love? And I've hinted at it. In his book, The Four Loves, uh, C.S. Lewis unpacks four Greek words for love. Okay, so in the New Testament, when they're talking about love, uh, they're actually using four different words, and they always translate it the same, just love, but there's four different Greek words for love, because uh, the language of the New Testament is uh, the Greek language, okay? So I quickly want to share these. I don't have time to unpack these. I could preach a whole sermon on these. But there's four Greek words for love, so four kinds of love. The first one is this. It's phileo love, okay? So friendship love. Okay, the feeling I get when I'm with Tyler Martin, friendship love. We both love the drums, and we're both buddies, and we love Starbucks. I don't know if he actually likes it that much, but he goes there with me. And we're friends, all right? There's a friendship love there, okay? And then there's storge love, and this is the love you have for a family member. It's the love you have for someone just because they've always been there. You don't particularly, or particularly like the person, probably, or maybe you do, but you're like, eh, you know, I've done life with them my whole life. I know them, and it just feels safe and comfortable. I've known them. It's my family. I love them, okay? And I love my family. My family's here tonight. My brother and his wife are here, so I love you too. But uh, 
affectionate love. That's the story of love, okay? And the third kind of love, which is what a lot of people really, really love, is eros love, okay? Bow, chicka, wow, wow. All right, romantic, sexual love, okay? That's eros love. And finally, there's agape love, okay? And that's a selfless, godly love. Agape love is the most important kind of love. All these other kinds of love need to be subordinate to agape love. All these other kinds of love need to flow out of agape love. Agape love should enrich these other three kinds of love. So when you have a friend, but you also have this selfless, godly love towards them, it makes it more than just, hey, we like the same thing, so we'll hang out, but it makes it where you're committed to one another, right? It's this idea for all of the loves. So 1 John 4.10, it says, in verse 10, it says, in this is agape, or in this is love. It's not that... It's not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, okay? So what is John saying? He's saying love is Jesus on a cross. Love is Jesus on a cross. In this is love that he laid down his life for us. That's what love is. So if you want to know what is love, baby, don't hurt me, it's both a noun, okay? So it is a passion or emotion, those things, but it's also a verb. It's a feeling and an action. So there's nothing wrong with romantic feelings and butterflies and all that, but those can be selfish. It can be all about what they do for you. And I promise you, I still get butterflies. Don't hear me wrong. But at some point, the butterflies don't happen as much. You have to make a commitment to lay down your life, okay? So true love is not just a feeling. It's an action. So I think we need to get that. So the point is, God calls us to these kinds of relationships. In our very nature, we're designed to lay down our life for someone else, to love someone else, okay? All right, so one more point tonight, verse 21 through 25. says, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up his place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Third point, I think this is the biggest thing you need to get tonight. Biblical marriage is the vehicle through which we can exp- or fully express romantic love as God intends it to be expressed. Although Genesis chapter 2 makes clear that we're designed for loving, or for loving relationship in general, we're also designed for a certain kind of relationship, and that's marriage, right? And inside of marriage, we can experience the deepest and most powerful human intimacy possible. In fact, in marriage, it's the only place where we can experience all four kinds of love, right? So phileo love, like you're finding your best friend. There is storge love, you're welcoming a new family member. There's eros love, you have sex, you should have sex in marriage. And then there's agape love, you lay down your life for hopefully 50 or 60 years, consistently laying down your life for someone else. God knew that he had to set up a permanent, powerful bond to contain all four of these loves. So all four of those loves going wild, that's pretty powerful right there. And he had to create a container for those four loves to be expressed safely. So marriage contains the fullest expression of love that humans are capable of. Okay, so the question tonight is this, though, what is marriage? Okay, we talked about it, but what is marriage? Okay, so verse 24, you see that on the screen. It's a man leaves his father and his mother, and he holds fast to his wife to become one flesh. So marriage is both covenantal and, cl- and complementary. Okay, it's both covenantal and complementary. It's a, it's a relationship between a male and a female where they can 
wholly give themselves to one another. And when I say covenant, it's a, it's a relationship where two people both desire to be with one another, but they also are committed to it. Like there's no way out or there's not supposed to be. Okay, so Tim Keller says this. He says, it's a relationship far more intimate and personal than a merely legal business relationship. Okay, so it's not just a contract, but at the same time, it's far more durable, binding, and, uncon- and unconditional than one that's based off mere feeling and affection. A covenant relationship is a stunning blend of law and love, okay? And by complementary, so I said covenantal, and then complementary, what I mean by that is both sexes are coming together to more wholly reflect God's image. Man and woman together fully reflect a picture of who God is. In marriage, they come together and they become one flesh, okay? So the word for one flesh in the Hebrew is a cod, a cod. A cod means fused together at the deepest level. So when a couple comes together in marriage and they consummate it in the bedroom, they become one flesh, they become a cod, and they form the most powerful human relationship possible. It blurs the lines between a man and a woman. It makes it hard to tell who is who. And it's when you are known most intimately by another person. And the only relationship that's powerful enough to hold this power of a cod is the marriage. It's the marriage relationship where you say, I know the best of you. I know the worst of you, but I still want you. I'm committed to you for better or for worse, for sickness and health, for riches or poor, something like that. The point is, you're not supposed to go get a divorce if you're not feeling it anymore. Okay? That's what marriage is. Because of the power of a cod, that's why we have marriage. And because of this power, sexuality and romance are extremely risky. Okay? Because of this idea of one flesh, it's really risky to get married. It's risky to give yourself to someone. So the question is, why would we still want to get married if it's so risky? Well, thank you for asking. Why do we want marriage? It's up on the screen. This is why we want marriage. Quickly here. The first reason is friendship. Okay? So in in verse 20, it says there's not a helper fit for them or fit for him. So in marriage, you get that best friend. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 talks about how two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one can lift up his fellow, which is a cool word. We should say fellow more often. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. And how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So first thing is friendship. You need a companion. You need a helper. Second thing is gardening. Okay, you're like, what? We're gardening? Yeah, gardening. The second thing is is marriage is created so we can have someone to pursue our call with, okay? So God puts Adam in the garden. He tells him to work it and to keep it, okay? It's a big old garden. It's like the size of a continent. And he says, Adam, you got this, baby. You can garden this huge garden. So very practically speaking, he needed someone to come alongside him and to help him. He could not garden the whole thing on his own. So God created Eve, and they built their marriage around a calling, to rule and subdue the earth. So God wants you to have a partner so you can pursue your calling with them. So hopefully, if you're going to get married, you find someone who has a similar calling to you or they fit together. That's just practical, right? The third reason, and this is why a lot of people like to get married, is sex. So marriage, one of the purposes of it is for it to be a safe place where we can express our sexuality. So sex in the garden was beautiful. There was no shame. It says they were naked and not ashamed. It's beautiful. Think about that. I remember, and I'll talk more about my story later, but I remember every sexual encounter I had before I was married to Emily, I always felt so shameful. 
Like there's something inside of us that knows it's not right to become a cod with someone else who's not our spouse. We just know that. Felt so shameful, so guilty. But then when I, just to be honest, when I had sex the first time, I was like, Holy Spirit, is that you? Are you here? What's up, Holy Spirit? This is a lot better than having sex outside of this marriage. There's something about sex inside marriage where there's no shame, there's no guilt. It's beautiful. God blesses it. Holy Spirit shows up and you have the best worship service ever, right? Like some of you are like, okay, that's weird. We're going to move on from that. Adam and Eve wholly gave themselves to each other and they became a cod. And they were fused together at the deepest levels and they were naked, fully vulnerable and not ashamed. So this is the best way for sex to be expressed. It's meant to be this glue inside a marriage that keeps a man and woman together. Because if me and Emily are fighting, let's just be honest, okay, I'm, I'm being real with you tonight. If we're fighting and, you know, we want to have sex because it's something humans are made to do. Okay, you're made to have sex, you're just made to do it inside a marriage, okay? But we want to have sex, it's hard to keep fighting, right? It glues you back together. We both want to have sex, we should stop fighting, okay? Just being very honest, it keeps you together, it keeps you committed to one another. But every sexual act outside of this marriage is a sin, it's not a sin because God wants to steal your fun, but it's a sin because it destroys you. It literally is a sin against your own body is what Paul says. It destroys you at your core. So 1 Corinthians 6, Paul talks about this. He says, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. Every other sin, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. It's a sin that cuts at your very identity. It cuts at your core. Verse 19, and this is why Christians should not have sex outside marriage. It says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Jesus paid for you on the cross. You are not your own. Your body's not your own anymore. You cannot just do whatever you want. Instead, you need to treat it with love and, and respect and with dignity, you need to view sex as a higher thing than just as something that you need to do, just like eating or drinking, or something you need to get off your chest because it's an instinct. You need to view it as higher. It's more sacred than that is what Paul's saying. He's saying that Jesus bought you with a price. So how can you then go out and sin against your very own body? So I say all that to say this. Paul tells us when we have sex with someone, we are joining ourselves with them, and we're becoming a cod. And this is what Paul means. When you have or when you sin against your own, own body, the reason you're sinning against your own body is you're joining yourself to someone who you're not supposed to join yourself with. And that's why sexual sin is one of the most serious sins. It's why it's one I talk about a lot because it defiles us, it destroys us, it rips at our very inner being and, and it makes us a cod with someone who we weren't supposed to be a cod with. So because of the seriousness of this, we should flee sexual morality. And in the Greek, flee sexual morality is not just flee sexual morality. It's a strong command, the strongest possible terms. Paul is saying, run away. Get away from it. If some girl or some guy comes in and he's like, hey, trying to, you know, flirt with you or seduce you, you run. You say, I'm out of here, boy. Start running, right? I want to see you running out of apartments on the weekends. I'm out of here. Flee. Flee from sexual morality. Get away from it. It's going to destroy you, okay? And this is not just to obey some rules. It's because Paul knows the seriousness of it. And Paul was single, so don't say, hey, buddy, it's easy for you to say. You're married. No, Paul was single, all right? So he was really, or truly living this out. All right, so fourth reason, or for, the fourth reason for marriage, or not, yeah, for marriage is family, okay? And that's the final reason. Well, there's more, I'm sure, but these are the four I see in Genesis 2. Family is the final reason. So 
Or so marriage gives us a safe place to bring children into the world. Our study after study shows that children, are they most flourish when they have a mom and a dad. That's just the reality. Because there's something that a mom brings, something that a dad brings, and when they're committed together, it brings the children up in the best way possible. It doesn't mean that single moms can't do it or different people can't do it. It doesn't mean a grandma can't, whatever. But the best place for a family to be raised is inside of a marriage between a man and woman. Okay, so Genesis 128 says, And God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So very practically speaking, God gives us marriage as a vehicle uh, through which we can fill the earth. So everyone here does not need to have kids. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying you have to have kids or you're married. But I'm saying that it's, or it's one of the many reasons for marriage. Okay? And, and actually, there was a fifth thing, but this is kind of a, a separate thing. So the fifth thing about marriage, so those are all from Genesis. This is something else, is marriage is a way that uh, we become a new creation. Okay? So in 2 Corinthians 5.17, it talks about how if you're in Christ, you become a new creation. Okay? And marriage helps us to truly live like Christ, okay? Because you have someone who you're committed to and who you're with all the time, who annoys the poop out of you at times, and who you annoy, and you fight, and you bicker, but you have to continue to lay down your life for that person, and it helps you become like Christ. Like marriage is, very practically speaking, it, or one of its purposes is to help you become like Christ, because you have to commit to someone else. You can't just do your own thing. You have to commit to someone else, and also, not only that, but marriage is also a reflection of Christ's love for the church to the world, because in Ephesians 5, 25, it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So very practically, when we love each other inside of marriage, we are being a signpost to the world of God's love. It's a signpost. It's saying, hey, just as I'm laying down my life for Emily and she's laying down her life for me, Jesus laid down his life for you. We're reflecting uh, the very love of God to the world. Okay, so it's recreation. That's the final thing. All right. So one more question I want to ask. Okay, so you're hearing all this, you're like, okay, great. But the question is, what if biblical marriage is not for me? Like, what if this idea of a man and woman coming together is not for me? Could be many reasons for that. Maybe you want to do your own thing. Maybe you're not attracted to people of the opposite sex. Very practically speaking, what's that mean? Is this all I get to do? It seems from Scripture that that's what it says. Like, when I look at it, very honestly speaking. But there is another option. There is a second way, and Paul talks about this, or second thing you can pursue. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 6 through 8, and verses 32 through 35. He says, he says, now it's a concession, not a command. I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, and one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single, as I am. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to, or, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Okay. Point is, it's a lot, but Paul was single, okay? And he believed that singleness was beautiful. It was beautiful. And he says, I wish you were all single, which very practically speaking, how do we keep bringing children into the world? And that's why he says it's not a command. It's just something I hope for you. Paul thought singleness was awesome, which I would love to see more of in Chi Alpha, okay? Some of you are so obsessed with finding a spouse. Chill out. You're only 18. It's going to be okay. 
And I can't really speak because I got married at 20, so I'm being a hypocrite. But chill out. Paul says that singleness is beautiful. And that's part of our problem in our culture is we think we have to get married. Or so when, or so when we see something restrictive or, or seemingly restrictive like the biblical marriage in Genesis 2, like that's all we can do is one man, one woman, and we say, hey, that's a, or how can that be the only thing that God offers? It's because we don't value singleness that we look at that and, and look at it with disgust because we don't think singleness is a good option at all. And I just want to say to you, if you're single, for whatever reason, it's your own reason, if you're single, God can use you in ways that he can't use married people. Singleness is a beautiful option. It's a valid biblical option. And, and Paul says it's better than getting married. But pretty much what he says in the passage in a different part, he says, hey, if you can't handle yourself, if you're burning with passion, then go ahead and get married. But I think you should stay single. So Paul's saying for those that, like people who truly live out single lives, like those are the cream of the crop in my opinion. People who say, I don't need to give into my passions and my desires, but I'm going to lay down my life to make Christ known across the earth. So I'm not putting that on any of you. I'm not saying you have to be single. That would be very hypocritical of me, okay? I'm married. I have a child. I'm enjoying marriage. It's beautiful. But I want you to know that it's an option, okay? It's a beautiful option. All right. So within the, so with all this in mind, biblically speaking, we have two options for romantic relationships. We have marriage, as we see it in Scripture, and singleness. So God does not bless friends with benefits, okay? Like some of you love friends with benefits. I did a lot in high school. It was bad, okay? Or it may seem fun in the moment, but it's not good for you, okay? God does not bless hooking up with random people. He does not bless pornography. He does not bless cohabitation. He does not bless divorce. He does not bless two people being in a relationship for a very long time with no intention of getting married and acting like they're married but not actually being married. He doesn't bless that. And the reason he doesn't bless that is not because he's a killjoy or or wants to steal your fun, but it's because he, he created marriage. He created sexuality, and he knows how it's supposed to work. So any, in God's view, okay, this is scripture. I'm not, like, making this up. This is from scripture. In God's view, any sexual activity outside of marriage as we see it in scripture is out of bounds, and it destroys us. Paul says it's a sin against your own body. That's why God doesn't want you to do it outside of marriage. He doesn't want you to pursue these sexual or romantic, or romantic relationships outside of marriage or outside of the intent of getting married. It's because he knows it's going to hurt you. God loves you. God cares about you. Some of these rules in the book can seem constraining, okay? Like, I want to be greedy. I want to buy lots of stuff. Just being honest with you, I like stuff. I like to buy new things. But God says, no, if you want to follow me, sell all your possessions, give to the poor, and come follow me. He said that to a man. Jesus said that. And what did the man do? He turned around and walked away because he didn't want to follow Jesus. He said, that's too hard. I can't do that. But the reason that Jesus asked that man to sell all of his possessions and to follow him is because he knew that if he did that, then he would find life and he would find freedom from the bondage of greed. And the same thing applies to sexuality. I know it's hard, guys, especially in our culture. I struggle. I have not prayed over a sermon more than this one because it's just such an explosive issue in our culture. But I just want to encourage you guys. I haven't struggled uh, with every kind of sexual sin. Like, I don't understand some struggles, so I can't speak to all of them. But the ones I have struggled with, I've found that if I pursue God's design and not my own idea or culture's idea, I find much more joy, okay? So I just want to encourage you with that. And that's open-handed. You look at the scriptures. You see what God says, and you do what God tells you to do. But I really believe that this is God's design, and I believe it's beautiful. Okay, so the main idea, again tonight, is this. Marriage is a beautiful gift from God that's worth pursuing. It's a beautiful gift from God that's worth pursuing. So three things. We can trust that God's dream for marriage is good. Two, we're designed for a loving relationship. 
And three, biblical marriage is the vehicle through which we can fully express romantic love as God intends it to be expressed. Okay, and I think if you get these things, so, so we're starting off with marriage because everything flows out of this. So we'll talk about sex, we'll talk about dating more next, or in, in two weeks. We need to get these points first, okay? Like, what kind, of, what kind of relationship does God bless? So marriage, as we see it in Scripture. And is it good? Yes, it's good. And also the fact that we're designed to love someone. We're designed for this. So I hope you get that. So as I said, talking about this can be very difficult for me. There's not a thing that I stress out more about than this issue being on the college campus. There's a lot of confusion surrounding this. There's a lot of hatred and fighting and all these things about you know, sexuality and relationships and marriage. And as I said, I prayed for this sermon all year. I've been praying about it since August. I always do that. I, I think about this way ahead of time. I pray, God, can you help us to understand what your heart is? So my prayer for you tonight is this. It's not that you would just say, oh, Daniel said it, so I agree, but that you look in Scripture and see, but also that you would invite Jesus into your heart and let him be the Lord of every area, okay? So for me, I need to give the Lord the greed and say, hey, I can't just buy everything I want. Okay, I need to give to the poor. So for you, and for me, sexuality too, I can only do it inside marriage with my wife. Okay, I can't pursue it outside of that. But tonight, what we're talking about is sex. So I pray tonight that you would invite Jesus in and that you would pursue his best for you. Okay, so no matter what your background is, no matter if you've had many sexual partners or no sexual partners, no matter if you've had a ton of relationships or no relationships, that Jesus would give you a picture of his dream. And I say dream because it's a good thing. This dream for marriage, that he would give you that picture and that you would pursue it, that you would flee sexual immorality and that you would pursue Jesus with your whole heart. And this is my story, guys. This is my testimony. In high school, I was a Christian, and I knew that sex outside marriage was bad. I've been told that all growing up. It's bad. Don't do it. Get a purity ring. I had a purity ring. Okay, I was one of those guys. And I knew that sex outside marriage was bad, okay? But I was addicted to pornography. I looked at it every day for seven years. I was also pursuing, like, random sexual relationships, not actually having sex, but everything else, if you know what I mean, with other girls. And I was in this cycle of shame and guilt. And my only goal in this season was, hey, as long as I keep my virginity, until marriage, I'll be good, okay, because that's what good Christians do, right? You know, I remember those t-shirts, what does it say, like something about virginity rocks or something, it's so lame, but it's true, but anyways, uh, and right before I came to you and I, I lost my virginity, okay, right before, and it, and it led me to this, this place of deep, deep despair, because my view of God was that he would only love me if I obeyed that rule, and I just fell into this, this pit, so to speak, and I thought that he could never forgive me because I thought sexual sin was unforgivable. And it was in that moment, in my absolute lowest place, with dirt all over me, so to speak, nothing to offer God, that he came in. And he truly became my Lord. I'd been a Christian, but I hadn't made him my Lord. He came in and, and he forgave me. He said, Daniel, all that stuff, I can forget about that in a second. And he said, I can give you a new future. I can remember I was talking to my mom about this. which it sounds weird, but I was talking to her about it. And I said, like, Mom, how could any woman ever want to be with me, any Christian woman, after I've done this? Like, how could any woman who saved herself from marriage want to be with me after this? And she said, you know, God's grace is so huge. I promise you he has someone for you. And one month later, I met Emily. I'm not saying that's going to be your story, but I met Emily. She saved herself from marriage, all that good stuff. And God still blessed me. And now we have a child. And God is blessing our marriage. It's not perfect, but God is blessing it. I share that to say this. That it doesn't matter how far you've fallen, it doesn't matter how much you've screwed it up, 
there is forgiveness available for you tonight. There is a new day for you that's available. And I pray that you would never count yourself out to really pursue God's design. Because with the help of community, with the scriptures fueling you and the Holy Spirit empowering you, and with you giving yourself some grades, I really believe we can pursue God's dream for this. All right, so that's my prayer for you. If you would stand with us, we're going to close. Or stand with me. With that said, I always want to give an opportunity for people to put their faith in Christ. So if you would bow your heads and close your eyes, if, if you're here tonight and you're honest, or if you're honest, you're not in right relationship with God. Maybe you're like me. You're in that moment where you just feel like you're so sinful that God could never forgive you. I want to give you an opportunity to have a fresh start tonight and to, and to put your faith in Jesus. So if you'd bow your heads and close your eyes, nobody looking around, I'm going to count to three. And when I do, I want you to slip up your hand, and not because anything magical happens, but because I think God honors that sign of surrender and saying, Jesus, I want to follow you. Okay, so one, two, three. Slip up your hands all across this room. See that hand, see that hand, see that hand, see that hand. Tons of hands, God. If you can put your hands down, I'm just going to pray for you a simple prayer of repentance and of saying that you want to follow Jesus. Okay, and pray it in your heart. Jesus, we love you. We thank you that you have our best in mind and that you love us so much. God, I just pray that you'd breathe new life over every person in this room. God, I pray specifically for those who raise their hand that they would know what it means to be a new creation, that your forgiveness would flood through their body, that they would feel different, God, that they would know that they're new. And God, I pray that Psalm 1611 over them, that in your presence there would be fullness of joy fullness of joy, Jesus. I pray that you draw us into that tonight. In your name. Second way to respond tonight is this. If you're in this room and you're a Christian, but if you're honest, you've screwed up sexually. Maybe you're sleeping over with your boyfriend. Maybe you're looking at pornography. I don't know what. And nobody looking around because this is personal. Okay? This is personal. If you have some type of sexual sin and you've been pursuing, you know, what God originally designed to be between a man and woman in the garden, if you're pursuing that outside of that design and you want to give that to Jesus tonight, I want you to slip up your hand right now to Jesus. Just give that to Jesus. I'm not even looking. You just slip up your hand. I'm not going to look. Jesus, you can put your hands down. Jesus, I just pray tonight for any of us who have professed faith in you, but we haven't followed your guidelines for sexuality. God, I, I, I pray tonight that you would just breathe new life over them. Pray, breathe new life over me. God, I pray that you would give us a fresh start, that you would help us to pursue all that you have for us. God, I pray that each person would walk out of this room knowing your love and your grace. God, we love you. We thank you. In your name, amen.